1: This is the Tom Hartman program.
2: And welcome back. We had a caller a couple days ago. uh, I think it was Monday, expressing concern for his son. You know, he was going through a tough time as a result of the COVID and being home, and and who knows? I mean, when you're talking about kids with the social in this day and age of social media, if he was being bullied, things like that, and he was concerned that his son might even be suicidal and was asking, what do I do with this? And I said, you know, I'm not qualified to answer that question. Dr. Justin A. Frank, M.D., however, is. He's a psychoanalyst and a clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University, the author of Trump on the Couch, including Obama on the Couch and Bush on the Couch, his former books. Uh, His Twitter handle, which is the best way to reach him and say hi, is Justin Frank, M.D., which is spelled just the way it sounds. And uh, Dr. Frank, welcome back. How, how best, in your opinion, what should parents be looking for and how best to deal with children who seem to be in distress, particularly this kind of the suicidal variety or the, the depressive variety of distress as a consequence of the circumstances of the day?
3: Well, most parents, hi Tom, most parents know that the best way to talk to children is to try to listen to them first and see where they're at and what's bothering them and what they're thinking about. Then one wants to move further ahead and think about whether they have actual thoughts about hurting themselves, how they feel, what they like about themselves, what they think about the future, what they think about COVID. Are they looking forward to getting back to school? I mean, see if they're really interested in life and in the vital parts of life and also a sense of their creative self, their self-esteem, as opposed to the problem of having a negative self or having a part of you that doesn't like you. And I think both parts exist in all of us to some extent. And certainly in kids, it's important to be able to pay attention uh, to those things clearly and try to listen to them and see if they've had any thoughts or fantasies or feelings about it. I mean, it goes further than that. If you want to see a professional, but uh, go ahead with what your thoughts are.
2: Well, how do you open that conversation? I mean, having raised three kids myself, I'm real familiar with the, how are you feeling? Fine.
3: Right, where where did you go out? What did you do? Nothing. Yeah, exactly. So the way to open it is to say what you've been noticing without necessarily asking a direct question. You know, I notice you've been keeping to your room a lot lately. Could we talk about it or what's going on? You know, it's like being open to be listening rather than saying, how are you or how are you feeling? Because those are direct questions that can be completely denied or ignored or dismissed by most kids or many kids, like you said. I've also raised three children and they get depressed sometimes. And I've dealt with their Mm -hmm. sadness and their depression by trying to listen to them And when they bring it up or when it comes out. It's hard to open the conversation, but a lot of times, I mean, I was just referred a family uh, recently where the oldest son committed suicide and to help them deal with the aftermath of that. And it's terrible because they knew something was wrong and they didn't know how to approach him. And he kept denying that he was suicidal. And this is a very loving, concerned family. And uh, it's horrible. And I think the best way to do it is to try to psychologically approach the child with a very loving parental love and not just saying, what did you do? What are you thinking? But like, you know, what's going on? Or you feel like, or sitting next to them. I sometimes, when they're younger, I actually go and hang out with them in their room. And uh, if they invite, Mm -hmm. they let me in. Mm -hmm. I think it's important (laughs) to just be able to listen to what's bothering them. And there are lots now, of things, mainly with school and friends and isolation.
2: Yeah. There are two things that you said that, that triggered questions in my mind. The first was about depression and sadness. Is it not important to tell kids that sometimes being depressed and sometimes being sad is an entirely appropriate response to circumstances out of your control that you don't like? And we just have to figure out ways to work through that.
3: Yes. In fact, I think that's very important. It's also important to tell the parents that so they don't panic about having a sad child and because of the interview that happened the other day with Megan uh, on the Oprah show, you know, it's Mm -hmm. brought up the issue of suicide a lot. And I think that it's very scary to parents if they have a sad child. No, sadness is part of life and it's not the same thing as suicide. And sadness is a is a feeling that one can get over just like one is not happy all the time, one's not going to be sad all the time. I think it's very good what you said it's not depression, sadness and depression are not the same thing
2: and then the second point that you raised was you know the sense of a future. I remember a couple of decades ago when I was very into studying and writing about you know kind of psychology in general, all those books I wrote on ADD and I read a study that found that. Among people who were suicidal, genuinely suicidal, and particularly among people who ultimately committed suicide, one of the most common characteristics was that they could not imagine their own future. They couldn't look into the future and see themselves a year or two years, three years from now in a way that had enough detail that indicated that they were actually visualizing it. Can you speak to that? Is that? And how do you deal with that?
3: Well, one of the things you raised as you and you asked that when you were doing your research, it was on ADD. And people who have attention deficit disorder have a much harder time imagining the future than people who don't. So people who do are uh, have that problem, really, it's much harder for them to conceptualize what they're going to look like, what they're going to feel, where they're going to be in a year or two, and how they're going to do. They don't have that kind of imagination for some reason. It's just the way they're wired, really. It's not uh, it's just the way it is. Whereas other people who are more obsessional or more, you know, in schoolwork, they get an assignment, they do the homework right away, they take care of things right away, they have a sense of the future, they have a sense of their grade and what the teacher's going to say, they have a sense of all these things, whereas a person with ADD usually procrastinates to the last minute and doesn't really have a clear sense of even time or how long something will take. But a sense of the future is very important, and one of the things that's clear about What Meghan Markle said, I think that tapped into a lot of concerns that parents have, is that there was a sense of hopelessness, that there was no future for her, that she was completely lost. She was an outcast in this huge... New social network that she had married into, and that she had nobody to go to or to talk to, and she didn't know what to do. And there's a sense of hopelessness that is one of the building blocks the sad, tragic building blocks uh, to the suicidal person, where they really feel hopeless about the future. They feel trapped. They feel no way out. And the suicide is basically a wish to relieve themselves of just awful pain whether it's emotional i mean it's e- easier to talk about physical pain and suicide to be of chronic
2: so can we help people construct a future for themselves
3: yes you could help them construct a future by both align yourself with them and say that, in a way, when I was your age, I didn't have a sense a sense of the future, and these are some of the things I thought about, and let's uh, try to read a book or talk about something in the future and share right. some thoughts and feelings.
2: Right. And here's what we can do, and here's what you, yeah, great stuff. Here's Dr. Frank, I so again. appreciate you dropping by today. Thank you so much, okay. Dr. Justin Frank. Thank you. Okay. Always great talking with you. And I always learn something from Dr. Frank. It's uh, remarkable. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And you can reach Dr. Frank on Twitter at Justin Frank MD. Uh, let's see here. David in Los Angeles. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Well, I appreciate the last uh, discussion you had with the doctor here, but. And
4: I understand the importance of that, but that's not what I'm calling in for today. What I'm calling in today is to deal with this you-can-sit-your-watch-by-it type of mantra that always comes into play when Democrats come into office where the Republicans break out the dead clock. And this mantra, Mm. it's a mantra about... um, Overspending, whoop-de-whoop. Now, I was listening to C-SPAN the other day, and they had another startup um, lobbyist organization open books or something like that. And the guy said something really interesting that really tugged me in, his, in the honesty of the statement that he made. And what he said was that public spending crowds out access to public spending. Right? Now, meaning as a lobbyist and or one of these think tanks, and he said there are thousands of them in Washington, right? Now, Mm -hmm. I can assure you that we don't, the regular people, don't employ all of these thousands of lobbyists, right? And think tanks to come up with these mantras and repetitious uh language to which all of them be reading off the same page. Check it out, right? And so mm-hmm. um, what's fascinating with this is that the amnesia of the American people because like I say, you can set your watch by it. Every time they come, um they get out of office, and I might add, screw up the economy, right? And we got to come in and do cleanup, right? They don't help with the cleanup, but they are like just, uh, like I said, like a mantra. And this mantra is something that is um, think tanks, we're not financing them. And lobbyists, we're not financing them. So who who is it that's financing them? But big business, right? And so mm-hmm. when I said, when he made that comment about public spending crowds out private, and he went so far to say that we can judge our economy by the, how well Wall Street is doing. And we know that's a lie, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just so, look at the last I mean,
4: year. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's like
2: um,
4: as a party, the Democratic Party, the so-called progressive wing of it, I know that they have to know this history. They have to know that this is standard operating procedures from their, I wouldn't call them their counterpart now because they're so far right, right? That, um, (laughs) I mean, you need binoculars to see these people, right? I mean, they're just like out there. But point being, Check out the mantra, that's going to come fast and furious as we go
2: forward with trying to revive this economy. I'm with you, David. I call it it the two Santa Claus theory, and that's what Jude Wineski laid out in the 1970s, is that when Republicans are in power, they should run up the deficit as bad and as fast as they can, and then when Democrats come into power, scream about the deficit. David, thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman.
1: Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
2: Welcome to the Todd Hartman University Book Club. We're reading today from my book, Adult ADHD. The first edition, or the first draft or version of which I actually wrote some 20 years ago, but it's, you know, we've updated it and reissued it, and I think you'll find it really interesting. This is from the introduction. There's a substantial subpopulation of the world that has a common and somewhat consistent set of personality characteristics. These traits have, for many people, led to difficulties in school, relationships and work, and are collectively known among psychologists and psychiatrists as Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. When researching this subject, I was struck by the number of ADHD adults I met and interviewed who'd chosen to become entrepreneurs, to strike out on their own, to forge their own unique lifestyles and businesses independent of others. Most often, these people are involved in an ever-changing life, often starting many businesses, or regularly leading their existing companies in new directions they thrive on stimulation and living on the edge one biography of ben franklin asserts that he was america and possibly the world's first real entrepreneur because rather than simply learning to trade and opening a lifelong business he learned dozens of trades and created more than thirty businesses as well as social and governmental institutions the post office libraries all kinds of things ben franklin created for this country this creation of something new over and over again is the core of entrepreneurship whether you're a company owner or an entrepreneur within a company where your job constantly involves new projects or change. When writing an earlier book, Attention Deficit Disorder, A Different Perception, I heard from a psychologist who specializes in ADHD that perhaps as many as half of all entrepreneurs have ADHD. Now, a few years later, and after conversations with thousands of entrepreneurs around the country, I've come to the conclusion that nearly all entrepreneurs have ADHD, to one extent or another. And I'd add probably... The vast majority of salespeople as well. I'm not speaking here of the fellow who carefully invests his money in a corner dry cleaning shop, runs his own business on that corner for 25 years to finally retire comfortably. While that person may meet some definitions of entrepreneurship, I'd rather refer to him as an independent small business person. Such people constitute an important and stable core of the business life of their community and of this country. Instead, I'm speaking here of those individuals who create or participate in dynamic, thriving, ever-growing, ever-changing companies. I'm speaking of the ones who take chances, who experiment. Henry Ford, who had several bankruptcies before he hit on a formula that worked. Or Thomas Edison, who tried thousands of different variations before he could get a working light bulb. These people's lives are often littered with failures, but their successes have given a spark of vitality and enterprise to America and made our country, particularly in its early days unique in the world they continue to bring us innovation and change they give great hope and promise for the future of our nation and the world some have applied their entrepreneurial characteristics to become great leaders john f kennedy and winston churchill for example stand out others have created inventions businesses social institutions and art that have changed the world this book is about people who have overcome their challenges and in many cases actually used aspects of their adhd to achieve prosperity or victory and for those who would seek to emulate them this book is for those who are willing to take chances to forge a new niche in this business social cultural political or art world or to create something new and how to do that successfully in the writing of this book i've interviewed many people in the business world including some of america's greatest few would want to jump up and raise their hands and say yes i have something the psychiatrists call a disorder Nonetheless, all were, to my mind, hunters, my term for people with attention deficit hyperactivity disorders described in this book, to one extent or another. They shared stories of their successes and failures from childhood through advanced age that were remarkably similar. From these stories and my own successes and failures as a business person and entrepreneur, I've assembled a collection of specific tools and techniques for people with ADHD to achieve success in the business world. And then, you know, we get into chapter one, the nature of ADHD. We all experience a spectrum of levels of states of consciousness as we go through moment to moment on daily life. On one end of the spectrum is the very open, distractible state that we experience when driving or walking on a busy street, noticing all the events around us, alert to everything in our environment. At the other end of the spectrum are the tightly focused states of consciousness in which we're so intent on the book we're reading or the conversation we're having, that the ticking of the clock in the room, or the drone of traffic outside, ceases to exist. When in a normal and relaxed state of consciousness, most people fall into a place somewhere between these two extremes of open and focused. They shift from open to focused and back with relative ease. It's difficult for the average person, however, to maintain either an extremely focused or an extremely open state of consciousness for hours at a time, without such things as meditation, training, or the use of drugs like caffeine. The natural tendency is to snap back to the center line between the two states, which is to have a little bit of both. Some people, however, have an off-center baseline. State of consciousness is their norm. Estimates vary between experts and researchers, but these people may represent as few as 10 or as much as 40% of the population. And This is the beginning of that difference that makes for ADHD and how it can be a tool, a useful thing, something that can actually help people succeed in the world. So this is our book report, our book reading today from my book, Adult ADHD, How to Succeed as a Hunter in a Farmer's World. Louise just got her first shot, her vaccine, stage one of two, she got the Pfizer here in Portland. I'm on the list, they haven't called me yet, but hopeful, (laughs) but anyway, we've got a lot coming to you in the program today. But to start out, Marjorie Taylor Greene, on the floor of the House of Representatives, tried, well, didn't try, succeeded in blocking immediate passage of the COVID relief bill. She did this rant on whether or not to adjourn, which is a stupid parliamentary procedure. But basically, she said this bill is terrible. She said, "quote It does everything to help illegals. It pays reparations. It's disgusting. We're already twenty eight trillion in debt. Japan and China own our debt. Japan and China own America because they own our national debt. And here the Democrats go and they're shoving us in more debt. We are enslaved like people with chains around our wrists and ankles," says Marjorie Taylor, excuse me, Taylor Green. Over at the Taxpayer Protection Alliance, there's an interesting op-ed about this COVID relief brimming with wasteful spending. And just by coincidence, the vice president for policy at the Taxpayers Protection Alliance, Patrick Hedger, is on the line with us. Prior to this, he was a research fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute's Center for Technology and Innovation and also served as a director of policy at FreedomWorks. The wonderful people who brought us the Tea Party. ProtectingTaxPayers.org is the website. Patrick's Twitter handle is Pat Hedger, H E D G E R 18, Pat Hedger, 18, uh, although he is well over 18 years old. Hey, Patrick, how are
5: you? Oh, had to take that low one last dig, didn't you, Tom? How are you doing? <laughs> oh,
2: uh, about your age? Yeah, oh, no, you're, all right. oh. you're a young guy. I mean, I'm the old man here. I'm <laughs> creaky back in my day. Anyhow, Patrick, give me your take on this COVID relief bill. Do you agree with Marjorie Taylor Greene that we American people, and presumably, I'm assuming because she specifically said, you know, this helps out black farmers. So I assume she's talking about white people. We are in chains. Oh, gosh,
5: I don't want to be anywhere near what Marjorie Taylor Green is saying. I, you know, I, God bless it's you, unfortunate my friend to be on. It's unfortunate to be on the right of center trying to make arguments where I do care about the plight of the people in this country that could use a hand up and could use a hand out. You know, Tom, you and I disagree on a lot of things, but I trust that you have good in your heart. And I just don't know where MTG or Marjorie Taylor Greene is coming on a lot of issues. So to put her aside, which I think a lot of folks need to do, I'm just concerned about this bill in terms of a lot of it is not focused. I mean, the vast majority of it is not actually focused on direct COVID relief, right? I can make a case for the government to be an insurer of last resort, uh, especially in a case like COVID-19, right? I mean, if Godzilla came ashore and tore apart the West Coast, I would say the federal government should get involved and help people out. And the COVID-19 has been basically a microscopic Godzilla on our economy. But I worry that as some estimates, I believe it was the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget said that only about 5% of this $1.9 trillion bill, which is not a small amount of money, it's the GDP of Canada, this $1.9 trillion bill, only 5% of it is directed towards specific COVID-19 relief. And that means a lot of the rest of it is sort of a Christmas tree of political priorities.
2: So that's your principal argument against it?
5: Yeah, I I mean, I'm willing to have a debate about the other things that are in the bill, if we could argue about those. as Well, no, I'm happy to
2: talk about that. Sure. First of all, the OECD, and I don't know if you caught this, this was in the the Financial Times day before yesterday, and then the United Press International published it. You're familiar with the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's basically the group of the 34 richest nations in the world. The poorest is Costa Rica, the richest is, I think, is us. And they came out with a study. It's called an interim report, actually. And they suggested that originally in December, three months ago, they predicted that worldwide GDP would grow in 2021 by 4.2%. They have revised that upward to 5.6%. And the reason why they said, and uh, this is a quote, Projected U.S. economic growth indicates a 3% revision compared to the December outlook due to President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. And then they add the large-scale relief package will increase upswings in both the U.S. and international economies. The point of, okay, we're increasing the national debt here, but... And I know in the, in the press release you had sent me earlier, it quoted our national debt at being 126% of GDP, which is interesting because that's the exact number we were at after World War II. And what did Dwight Eisenhower do to get us out of that 126% debt uh, you know, ratio to GDP? He borrowed more money and built the interstate highway system and built schools and hospitals all across America. He created the infrastructure necessary for business to prosper. We have been living in austerity for 40 years this Reaganomics. And so, uh, you know, if, if this bill, you know, helps people with COVID and puts America back together, I don't get what's wrong with that.
5: Well, so there's a lot of provisions that I, I wouldn't argue that exactly put America back together. You've got some pet projects that create moral hazard, right? And, and and But the majority of my point is that these are things that ought to be discussed individually and not entirely tied to COVID-19, because a lot of Americans are focused on how do we recover from COVID-19, which, again, like I said. But you realize you can't
2: people. do that with Republicans threatening to filibuster everything in the Senate. I mean, this is the one chance Democrats are going to have.
5: Yeah, well, and this is going to get through without any Republican support. I already, have. It already has. Again, yeah, and, and I'm again, I'm very critical of the way that Republicans spent during the Trump years leading up to this. It, it's unfortunate that we're spending like this in a crisis when we should have been putting away a nest egg during the good times. Isn't that when we should be spending in a crisis? Yeah, we should, should we set aside a nest egg during
2: good times, like three years yeah, ago? I gr-
5: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think the Republicans were completely irresponsible. Lost the mantle of fiscal responsibility over the last few years. But that doesn't mean that we need to beget more ridiculous spending. I think there is room for targeted relief, targeted stimulus. And I would phrase it more as a compensation to the businesses that have been forced to be closed by the public health measures. But, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to bail out pensions, hundreds of billions of dollars to build a new subway system. I mean, these things... This Christmas tree of pork barrel spending is not the way to get the economy going again. It robs capital
2: from uh, small businesses. Okay, I'll leave you with the last word. Patrick Hedger, VP of Policy at the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. ProtectingTaxpayers.org is the website. You can tweet Patrick at Pat Hedger, H-E-D-G-E-R 18. And Patrick, thank you for dropping by. It's always nice having a civil conversation with you. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Likewise, Tom.
2: Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'll give you a little more detail on this legislation and on the, on the conservative argument against it. Not necessarily the one Patrick was making, but there are others.
1: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
2: So the principal argument that is being made right now against this bill is that it's 126% of GDP. And, you know, in other words, our our debt is huge. Our debt is absolutely overwhelming. And for that, I would refer you to the U.S. Treasury that keeps track of, you know, who we owe money to, how much we owe, what our national debt is. And right now, out of the uh, roughly $28 trillion debt, almost half of that is held by our government itself. In other words, the money that we owe is money we owe ourselves. There's about $3 trillion in the Social Security Trust Fund. There's $1.5 trillion in state and local government pension funds. There's $100 billion in private pension funds. There's a quarter billion in insurance companies funds and $150 billion in individual savings. But then, Other investments basically of that type, government-sponsored enterprises, government-backed brokers and dealers, government-backed banks, that's $1.79 trillion. So, again, quoting, if you add the debt held by Social Security and all the retirement and pension funds, almost half of the U.S. Treasury debt is held in trust for your retirement. So, what happens if the debt goes away? I mean, you know, if the debt goes away, where do you put your money? I mean, this is one of the reasons why conservatives, not speaking to Patrick here, but this is one of the reasons why people like Pete Peterson with this, Pete Peterson Institute, you know, he was an investment banker, he made billions of dollars on Wall Street, and then he started this huge crusade to end the national debt. Well, why would a Wall Street banker want to end the national debt? The answer is really simple. They don't want you know, like you and me, to be putting our savings in treasury bonds, they want us to put our savings in CDs with their banks on Wall Street. (laughs) I mean, this is not rocket science, right? Keep in mind, as modern monetary theory points out, government debt is private savings, now, given about half of government debt, a little less than half of government debt, is actually government savings. It's like like I said, the Social Security Trust Fund. It's a savings account. Would you rather have that invested in treasuries, or would you rather have it invested in Citibank, so that, so, you know, or whichever bank it is, that Jamie Dimon is, uh, you know, so that he can make another billion dollars in salary, you know, by skimming a little bit off the top? Well, obviously, Pete Peterson has his opinions on that. But what do you do with this? Where do you go with this? I think it's fairly clear that, A, we have to have a national debt. The national debt has grown in large part because of tax cuts. You had the Reagan tax cut, he tripled the national debt, it was $800 billion when he came into office, it was $1.6 trillion when he left. He tripled the national debt, excuse me, it was $2.4 trillion when he left. Um, and George Herbert Walker Bush added to that with his little war. George W. Bush added another almost $2 trillion to the national debt through tax cut and $3 trillion to the national debt through two unnecessary wars that he lied to us about. And then Donald Trump added another $3 trillion to the national debt with more tax cuts and absurd military spending. So, you know, there it is. So anyway, just to recap real quickly, our national debt, about half of our national debt right now, is held by the government and pension funds. You know, the Social Security Trust Fund is almost $3 trillion of the national debt, for example. So if you pull out the government part of the debt, we're not even at 100% of GDP. But, but even at that, as I, as I pointed out with Patrick, Dwight Eisenhower came into office and we were really at 126% of GDP as our national debt. And what did he do? He built the national highway system. It created such an explosion of economic activity across America that with a top 90% income tax bracket and a 51% top corporate tax bracket, the tax revenue from all that increased economic activity paid down the national debt in the eight years, much of it in the eight years of the Eisenhower administration. And then Kennedy maintained those uh, those levels, those, those tax levels as did Richard Nixon, as did Lyndon Johnson, as did Jimmy Carter, as did Jerry Ford. Uh, You know, I I realize I'm not in order here, but just go through it. So I see this as Republican hysteria. They are all hysterical about the national debt when it's time to spend money on people, but not so much when it's time to spend money on tax breaks for billionaires. Marsha in La Jolla, California. Hey, Marsha, what's on your mind?
6: Hi, Tom. Well, I have been calling my fellow musicians about calling their congresspeople to support the Butch Lewis Emergency Pension Plan Relief Act of 2021. And that is included in the reconciliation bill. And I'm grateful for that. You know, when I retire, I want to have something to retire on.
2: Yeah, Reagan screwed with our, you know, messed with our pension systems, made it legal for companies to start booking pensions as assets rather than liabilities so that when companies got bankrupted, that money didn't get paid back. And so, like, you know, most famously, you know, when Eastern went bankrupt back in the day, this is one of the first major bankruptcies after Reagan changed the rules. All those people who had worked for Eastern Airlines for decades just completely lost their pensions entirely and I think United did the same thing. I I believe American did, I might be wrong, but lots and lots of companies have. You've got, uh, it's just a mess as a result of basically the Reagan administration saying, yeah, workers' pensions, they're not so important. We're going to protect stockholders and it's great that musicians are being protected by this. Marcia, thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. Dan in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Hey Dan, what's on your mind?
7: Hey, so I just wanted to make a comment on the caller that you had from the conservative Patrick. financial
3: yeah, Patrick Hager. Yeah.
7: yeah. So that is the problem with conservative thinking in general. Like, I, I don't, they they say that helping people is horse barrel spending. Does he think that we're living in an obtuse, like, confined environment where we should just give, um, you know, checks to everybody or, like, a little bit of money and then help nobody else out? I mean, I have, yeah, I pay a thousand dollars in child care every month. You know, there's more than just, you know, helping people directly, and that's what's really been turning my stomach with this whole um, debate over this coronavirus spending. Is that? They're saying that like 5% is going towards COVID relief. No, it's actually like 85% is going towards COVID relief, just in different sectors. Like, I used to work in restaurants. They got destroyed, you know? So we're helping mm-hmm. these guys out, you know? And yeah. that's, it's so obtuse, and it's, it's enraging, because they're, they're making it seem like we're... He said something about a subway. Okay, bro. Like, okay, all right, there's going to be a subway that's going to be built, but that's not what the bill's about, and it's, it's enraging.
2: Yeah. Now, I, I get it. In, in Patrick's defense, there's really kind of two kinds of Republican conservatives right now. There are the, or maybe three on the extreme, you've got the the Marjorie Trader Greens and, the, and Lauren Boebert's, you know, whose who's, uh, latest anti-Pelosi ad ends with a shotgun blast. <laughs> wink, wink, nod, nod. And then kind of in the middle of the Republican, you've got uh, the people who are basically just white supremacists. And then um, you've got the old fashioned conservatives, you know, the the conservatives, not even, they're to the right of Eisenhower, but kind of the Reagan conservatives, I guess. Reagan was willing to bring the racists along. But basically their position is that, you know, yes, we should have a federal government and it should do more than just run the police and the army. Um, But it it shouldn't do very much more. We should trust in the free market, in quotes, and and the philanthropy of billionaires to basically cover most all of our social needs. And I think that Patrick is kind of in that category. And there is a philosophical history to that. I mean, that goes back to Edmund Burke in in the 1790s, you know, when he was having these huge debates with Thomas Paine that uh, provoked Paine to write his book, The Rights of Man. So, you know, it's a legitimate, I think, Perspective, And I think it's useful that we have those debates. And it's one of the reasons I'm grateful to Patrick for coming on the program. And I'm unwilling to put the real hardcore crazies on the program, even though they're, you know, there's a number of them who are more than willing to do it. But it's like, you know, there are limits. So let's not try to personalize this. But I think this is a good thing. I mean, you know, the OECD is saying it's going to be good for the world to the tune of a whole hell of a lot more than $1.9 trillion dollars. It just seems like a good thing to me, and I'm really happy it's happening. Dan, thank you very much for the call.
1: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
2: Global food prices have been rising for months. Some fairly alarming stories about this on Financial Times, this one from Axios past spikes, they note, in food prices or in the price of food staples have been connected to periods of social unrest. I think, you know, we all remember when the price of wheat went up in uh, one of the Arab Spring countries. That led to that vendor catching himself on fire and, and and tipping off the whole Arab Spring thing, or at least that was what was attributed to it. Global food prices rose 2.4% just in February, according to the Food and Agriculture Organization's Food Price Index. So what does this mean, in the context of economics. What's the relationship between food prices and political unrest? Professor Richard Wolff is uh, not only a genius economist, but also an astute political observer and, and uh, you know, observer of these kind of macro issues. His most recent book, The Sickness Is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. He's the economist. He's the co-founder of Democracy at Work.info and RDWolf.com with two Fs. And uh, you can tweet him at ProfWolf. Professor Wolff, welcome back. What are, your th- what are your thoughts on this?
8: Well, I think it's a a measurement. Think of it as a thermometer taking the temperature of how healthy we are or are not. It is now a kind of reality that the mass of people already feel. They use the phrase, it's just too much, whether it's COVID or the crash of our capitalist economic system or the fires in California or the cold weather collapse of the electric system in Texas. You have too many problems, and I haven't mentioned the Me Too movement or uh, Black Lives Matter issues and police violence. You're seeing a society that has accumulated problems but constantly congratulates itself that it has made this or that progress, not understanding that progress is not enough. The progress has to be measured by and adequate to the level of the problem. And so here we have food. If you have a global economic crash, If you have growing population, which we do, and if you have disrupted global supply lines, which we do, then you have to take extraordinary action or else, among other things, food prices rise. And you're at a point of the toleration of masses of people that you don't have a lot of slack left uh in keeping this economy stable that's why it's quite correct for you to point out for axios to point out uh, the parallel between rising food prices and what that does let's remember we are now in what is called a k recovery the people at the top are doing pretty well the mass of people at the bottom are not well rising prices for food hit the people in the middle and the bottom the hardest because they are the ones who spend the biggest portion of their income on food so you are making people that are already disadvantaged in the economic realm, now going to be facing unaffordable uh, food. They've already uh, found their rent unaffordable. I mean, at some point, this accretion of problems will be one too many. And that famous uh, uh, last straw on the camel's back will have been reached.
2: So in Tunisia, when, in fact, I just caught his name here, Mohammed Zizi was the guy who poured gasoline on himself and lit himself on fire on the 17th of December 2010, which tipped off or tricked, you know, started the Arab Spring. That was in response to an almost doubling of the price of wheat, in Tunisia, which was in response to apparently the desert moving south. This also created the crisis in Syria, where you had farmers from the north. The desert had moved south 100 miles over a period of about a decade, and farmers just literally lost their farms and they ended up in the big cities in Syria. And that was the initial opposition to Bashar al Assad, you'll, you'll recall, to his government. Do we have any sense of where these tipping points occur, how much of a price increase it takes, how big the population of a country? has to be that is in poverty or is at the midpoint of poverty. You talk brilliantly about how this accumulation or accretion of all these different assaults on people. But is there any, other than the kind of general principle, do we have any indicators, any warning signs? Does the UN say, "Uh uh-oh, look out, this country's at risk because, you know, this particular metric has been hit? Have we gotten that granular or that sophisticated in understanding how this all works?
8: Yes, we have, although the approach is a little different. What people have begun to notice is that many of these problems having to do with food are of quite some standing. For example, you pointed out ecological shifts, climate change as having had that impact in Syria and Tunisia and places where farmers are affected. Well, that's happening all over the world, number one. Number two, the disruption of supply lines that move food or the equipment that enables farmers to grow the food, that has also been building over. Over time, And here's what we know. A variety of countries have already hit the so-called tipping points and have only stayed okay by providing one or another kind of governmental support for the food business. I'll give you a couple of examples. In Russia, tariffs and special kinds of export controls have been added so that enough of the food grown in Russia stays in Russia so it can feed its people, not that that's enough. An even starker example is India, which has used an enormous amount of government resources in directly subsidizing the price of food, because it otherwise would have become unaffordable, and millions and millions — India is a very large country — of its poorest people, and it has an enormous poor population, would have been unable to afford enough food uh, to eat. even. Here in the United States. One of the uh, components of the latest bill passed, uh, the COVID relief bill is to extend the availability of food stamps. And whatever critics say, one of the reasons is that the statistics in the United States of what we euphemistically call food insecurity, i.e. hunger, have also been rising for some time now, and everyone is clear that whatever the exact tipping point is, we are already there because governments don't have enough money in many parts of the world to continue the kinds of supports and, and subsidies. And there are a number of countries who've scheduled to stop them at the end of March or the end of April or at the end of the summer harvest. And boy, let me tell you, if that happens, if they can't afford the subsidies, then you're going to see sudden spikes in food prices much larger than what we've already seen as these government supports are phased out. So we're already far along which is why minor adjustments, a little bit here or there, even the extension of the American food stamp program is way too little and already too late.
2: So in the 40 seconds or so we have left, what should America and what should the U.N. be doing?
8: You have to deal with priorities. You know the priority of of dealing with our health problem. We didn't pay attention to what that priority was, and we've paid a bitter, bitter price. The same applies to food. You have to systematically reorganize the whole farming, food raising, food processing, food transportation. You either do that as a massive priority, and neither Republicans nor Democrats are doing anything like it. Or else you're just waiting until this new additional problem adds to all the other ones, and we sit here, you and I, talking about the urgency as it gets worse.
2: Brilliant, brilliant. Professor Richard Wolf, Prof. Wolf over on Twitter, democracyatwork.info over on the internet. Professor Wolf, thanks so much for being with us. It's great talking to you.
8: Thank you, Tom.
0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu podcast.
2: Today in the Tom Hartman University Book Club, we're reading from Johan Hari's Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. He starts out talking about how he had been on antidepressants for most of his life, from his teenage years into his 30s. And then he says, Then when I was 31 years old, I found myself chemically naked for the first time in my adult life. For almost a decade, I had been ignoring my therapist's gentle reminders that I was still depressed despite my drugs. It was only after a crisis in my life, when I felt unequivocally terrible and couldn't shake it off, that I decided to listen to him. What I had been trying for so long wasn't, it seemed, working. And so when I flushed away my final packs of Paxil, I found these mysteries waiting for me, like children on a train platform waiting to be collected, trying to catch my eye. Why was I still depressed? Why were there so many people like me? And I realized there was a third mystery hanging over all of it. Could something other than bad brain chemistry have been causing depression and anxiety in me and in so many people all around me? If so, what could it be? Still, I put off looking into it. Once you settle into a story about your pain, you're extremely reluctant to challenge it. It was like a leash I had put on my distress to keep it under control. I feared that if I messed with the story I'd lived with for so long, the pain would be like an unchained animal and would savage me. Over a period of several years, I fell into a pattern. I would begin to research these mysteries by reading scientific papers and talking to some of the scientists who wrote them. But I always backed away because what they said made me feel disoriented and more anxious than I had been at the start. I focused on the work for another book, Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs, instead. It sounds ridiculous to say I found it easier to interview hitmen for the Mexican drug cartels than to look into what causes depression and anxiety, but messing with my story about my emotions, what I felt and why I felt it, seemed more dangerous to me than that. And then finally, I decided I couldn't ignore it any longer. So over a period of three years, I went on a journey of over 40,000 miles. I conducted more than 200 interviews across the world with some of the most important social scientists in the world, with people who had been through the depths of depression and anxiety, and with people who had recovered. I ended up in all sorts of places I couldn't have guessed at in the beginning. An Amish village in Indiana, a Berlin housing project rising up in rebellion, a Brazilian city that had banned advertising, A Baltimore laboratory taking people back through their traumas in a totally unexpected way. What I learned forced me to radically revise my story. My story about myself. My story about the distress spreading like tar over our culture. I want to flag up right at the start two things that shape the language I'm going to use through all of this book. I'm reading from the introduction. Both were surprising to me. I was told by my doctor that I was suffering from both depression and acute anxiety. I had believed those were separate problems, and that is how they were discussed for the 13 years I received medical care for them. But I noticed something odd as I did my research. Everything that causes an increase in depression also causes an increase in anxiety, and the other way around. They rise and fall together. It seemed curious, and I began to understand it only when, in Canada, I sat down with Robert Kohlenberg, a professor of psychology. He, too, once thought that depression and anxiety were different things. But as he studied it for over 20 years now, he discovered, he says, that the data are indicating that they're not distinct. In practice, quote, the diagnoses, particularly depression and anxiety, overlap, end quote. Sometimes one part is more pronounced than the other. You might have panic attacks this month and be crying a lot next month. But the, the idea that they're separate in the way that, say, having pneumonia and having a broken leg are separate is not borne out by the evidence. Robert's side of the argument has been prevailing in the scientific debate recently. In the past few years, the National Institutes of Health, the main body funding medical research in the United States, has stopped funding studies that present depression and anxiety as different diagnoses. They want something more realistic that corresponds to the way people are in actual clinical practice, he explains. I started to see depression and anxiety as like cover versions of the same song by different bands. Depression is a cover version by a downbeat MO band, and anxiety is a cover version by a screaming heavy metal group. But the underlying sheet music is the same. They're not identical, but they're twinned. The second insight comes from something else I learned as I studied these nine causes of depression and anxiety that he writes about in this book. Whenever I wrote about depression and anxiety in the past, I started by explaining one thing. I am not talking about unhappiness. Unhappiness and depression are totally different things. There's nothing more infuriating to a depressed person than to be told to cheer up or to be offered jolly little solutions as if they were merely having a bad week. It feels like being told to cheer up yourself by going out dancing after you've broken both your legs. But as I studied the evidence, I noticed something that I couldn't ignore. The forces that are making us depressed and severely anxious are, at the same time, making even more people unhappy. It turns out that there is a continuum between unhappiness and depression. They're still very different in the same way that losing a finger in a car accident is different from losing an arm, and falling over the street is different from falling over the cliff. But they are connected. The book, Lost Connections, by Johan Hari. Welcome back. Pramila Jayapal, who has been a guest on this program many times, and who's the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And she has specifically called out three Republican members of Congress for their involvement, her word, in the January 6th Capitol insurrection, this this traitorous attempt to bring down American democracy on behalf of uh, wannabe dictator Donald Trump. This is six separate letters that were sent Wednesday to the House Ethics Committee, the Office of Congressional Ethics, She called out representatives Lauren Boebert of Colorado, Mo Brooks of Alabama, and Paul Gosar of Arizona, three Republicans. Uh, She's saying we need to find the extent of, quote, their involvement in the deadly attack on the Capitol. She wrote, it is critical for the functioning of Congress and therefore the functioning of our democracy that this investigation is conducted. I urge the House Committee on Ethics and the Office of Congressional Ethics to thoroughly investigate Representatives Boebert, Brooks, and Gosar's conduct and refer any appropriate findings to the Department of Justice. And then she goes on, and this is where it gets, you know, really and truly amazing. Again, quoting from the letter. Five minutes after insurrectionists first breached the Capitol, Representative Boebert tweeted from inside the House chamber, quote, we were locked in the House chambers at 2.17 p.m., end quote. This is... What Representative Jayapal wrote in her letter to the, you know, to asking for an investigation of these three members. Back to Rep Jayapal's letter. She then tweeted, the she being Representative Bobert, she then tweeted a minute later, quote, Speaker has been removed from the chambers, close quote. She was one of only two members, the other being Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama, who tweeted the location of Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Then CrooksandLiars.com is reporting on this. As the Washington Post reported days after the January attacks, Representative Steve Cohen of Tennessee, Democrat, and John Yarmuth, Democrat of Kentucky, recounted that they had both witnessed Boebert, quote, with a large group in a tunnel connected to the Capitol days before the attempted insurrection that left four rioters and one police officer dead. This is what Steve, Representative Steve Cohen, the Democrat from Tennessee, said. We saw Boebert taking a group of people for a tour sometime after the third before the sixth. Now, whether these people were people who were involved in the insurrection or not, I do not know. And uh, Jayapal is saying, you know, we have a lot of private evidence, but there's also a lot of private evidence out there that we haven't seen yet. She, uh, she's asking for the House Ethics Committee and the Office of Ethics to look at all this. Just seems like a, a reasonable thing doesn't it? I mean, to find out if members of Congress are doing this, it's amazing. Uh, John in Eugene, Oregon. Hey, John, what's on your mind today?
6: Hey, Tom. Yeah, great to hear that uh, Representative Jayapal is taking the lead in the, uh, in the Progressive Caucus, and that's a voice that we, we really need to hear on a regular basis. I was calling about a estate tax. I just wanted to give you kind of the background on the attempt to abolish the estate tax under George W. Bush. I knew quite a few of the the people in the uh, estate division at the IRS at the time. And what happened was they could not pass the legislation to ban the estate tax outright, abolish it. So what they did was they fired about half of the estate lawyers in the IRS, just one fell swoop they were gone. And these people were the highest revenue collection people in the IRS. And they probably still are. On average, they were generating about $2,000 an hour when you extrapolated out uh, their work. Substantial amounts of money. And then the other side of the story that, you know, that well, the other thing that happened was obviously those people had really had no alternative to you know, market their expertise, except for going to law firms that did tax avoidance type of work, you know. So uh, there are many people that uh, take the lower wage and work in government because that's what their values dictate to them, you know. Because they believe in that.
2: Yeah. Reagan used to make fun of them. You know, he used to say if there were really good thinkers in government, they would have gone to work for industry, which just shows how cynical Republicans are, that they just don't believe that anybody would ever take, you know, a good job with good pay and a good retirement, but would never do that when there was, you know, more money being dangled by industry Uh, would never do that just because they love their country. Anyhow yeah, back to some
6: you know some of the highest skilled people in the agencies they want to do the patriotic thing, and that's what it is to them. You know, we have a great uh, senator here in Oregon named Ron Wyden, who's the chairman of the financial committee, and i I think I'm going to write him a letter and ask him to uh, explore the possibility of uh, you know putting some handcuffs on any kind of uh, executive administration coming in and wholesale, wiping out an agency, like similar to what this guy in the Postal Service is doing now, in other words, is it plausible to put safeguards in place that say, you know, like the EPA under this last grifter, was their budget was reduced 25%, you know.
2: Oh, and all the scientists uh, were told if you don't move to Kansas City or St. Louis or something, you know, in the Midwest, you're going to lose your job, and they lost half their scientists.
6: Yeah. Yeah. So they have yeah all these nefarious methods for, you know, bottlenecking an agency, preventing it from doing its work. And I just wonder if there was some kind of legislation that could be put in place that says, you know, you've got to you've got to fund these agencies.
2: Yeah. Uh, I'm with you. And this is, you know, John Thune, you know, the senator just, you know, he came out yesterday and said, well, let's abolish the, uh, you know, the estate tax. And, and he's got a lot of support in the Republican Party because, of course, they're all dancing to the tune of rich people. John, thank you very much for that. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue good Patrick white Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermaki, and Jay LeBlanc. All the folks who helped make this show work for you. And thank you for helping you know helping keep us going. Be good to yourself and those around you. Get out there, get active, tag you're it.
1: You've been listening to Tom Hartman.